What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, oh, I have an extra special guest. His name is Carson Block, and he is a, choose a adjective, brilliant, revered, notorious, short seller. Uh, say what you will about him. I find him to be an absolutely fascinating guy. I am a big fan of short sellers uh, and have interviewed a number of them. I find they are the ones who uncover fraud in all its guises, often when various uh, regulators are missing it. So whether we're talking about Jim Chanos uh, or David Einhorn or go down the list of all the various short sellers, Carson Block clearly joins that pantheon uh, of greatness. He has uncovered a huge number of frauds. Uh, he talks about how China has allowed uh, all sorts of fraudulent companies uh, to go public. And then the New York Stock Exchange and other U.S. regulators allow these companies that are essentially shells with nothing um, really happening going on to be publicly listed in the states where they manage to effectively steal money from investors. And he is absolutely um, blunt and vociferous in his criticism. Uh, he has uncovered a number of spectacular frauds that collapsed often to the point of being delisted publicly. Uh, in other words, they just went bankrupt. So uh, I found this to be really a fascinating conversation, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my conversation with Muddy Waters, Carson Block. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Carson Block. He is the famed short seller who is the founder of the research shop Muddy Waters. They have about $260 million in assets under management. Some of the firm's research reports have revealed extensive frauds at a number of companies, uh, leading to stock prices collapsing and some companies getting delisted. Carson Block, welcome to Bloomberg. Yeah, thanks for having me, Barry. I've been looking forward to this, hoping uh, to do it for uh, quite some time. So I'm glad we got the chance to connect. I'm glad we did. Thanks to her putting us together. Let's start with your background. And, and you have like a really intriguing background. You spent the summer of 1991 in Japan. Tell us about that. What would you learn about Asia from that experience? <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's going back pretty far. Um, I, I don't think I'd be here today if I hadn't gone to Japan um, that summer. But every time I say that, the flip side is maybe I'd be running Goldman Sachs instead. So um, <laughs> perhaps it wasn't a great thing. No, I I definitely kid on that one. But, um, yeah, I uh, that was summer after my freshman year of high school, and I had not yet been to 
a foreign country. So at the beginning of freshman year, and this um, history teacher who said that he would lead a group of students um, every summer to Japan to do an exchange. And that just so appealed to me. And you know, people ask me, well, why don't you want to go to Europe uh, for the first time uh, you go overseas instead? And I just make the joke that, yeah, Europe's the same as the U.S., except there are more bathtubs on legs. And, um, yeah, I don't know, being in Asia and culture totally different uh, really appealed to me. So um, went to Japan, and it, it, you know, it was so different, and um, especially in 1991, and the, the bubble had just burst there, but this was a period in the U.S. where, um, you know, all the a lot of the movies that were made in the late 1980s basically showed Japan dominating us. And, you know, every company has, uh, you know, has the Japanese element to it now. And, um, it, you know, that, that's kind of what was um, portrayed by the movies. And um, there was, you know, it seemed like Honda and Toyota were putting Detroit out of business. So... Yeah, it was it was a really interesting time to be there, and I didn't couldn't realize at the time that that was kind of the apex of Japan's economic might, so to speak. But uh, yeah, it really whet my appetite for Asia. And when I went to uh, school or university a few years later, um, I wanted to study. I wanted to study Chinese, but my uh, my girlfriend, who was a couple of years ahead of me in school, she was at Rutgers. She was studying Japanese. So because of that, and I, of course, studied Japanese for a year, but uh, ultimately switched to Chinese, broke up with my girlfriend and, um, <laughs> yeah, kind of set the course for the rest of my career. Yeah. So learning a little Mandarin certainly helped you go to law school and end up with Jones Day in their Shanghai office. Did Did the language help at all, studying the language or... Is it just so overwhelming for a foreigner that if you're not fluent, it doesn't matter? Yeah, that, that's actually an interesting question because the thing is, when I studied Chinese in school, so I took three academic years, including a summer in uh, Beijing studying, um, and just also uh, to fill in some of the, uh, the gaps, um, I didn't go to law school right after undergrad. So I graduated in 98 and I, I'd been interviewing for investment banking first year analyst gigs, but I also had this idea to start an A-share research firm in China. Um, and I just couldn't shake that idea. So I'd had an offer from one firm and I was yeah, still in process with others, but I just said to myself, you know, I'd probably always kick myself if I never gave idea in China a chance. So I'd never know what would have been. So 98, graduated, got on a plane, moved to Shanghai. Wow. Uh, I had no idea what I was really doing there. And yeah, within six or seven months, I figured out I'd met with some companies. I'd made contacts in the market. I sat down with a PLA general who was running businesses for the PLA and was somehow involved in markets. And I just got this picture that I was probably 10 years too early, that there was nothing I could say was investable, or there would be nothing I could say was investable for probably a decade or so. So I went back to the States, conventional iBanking, worked with my father then in equity research for a few years, covering micro caps, um, had some 
embittering experiences vis-a-vis markets, and that's when I went to law school. So when I entered law school, I didn't think I would practice law. I was just there to get a degree, and um, I ended up really enjoying law school. So I thought, okay, I'll practice. And coming out of law school, I had an offer to join Kirkland & Ellis in Chicago, but I also finagled an offer from Jones Day Shanghai, which the partner in charge of the Jones Day Shanghai office who'd given me the offer was advising me on a personal level. He said, you shouldn't come right out here to China. Just go and uh, work for a few years in the States and get good training and then come out. But anyway, I ignored his advice, took the offer, and ended up there. So to your question about language, and sorry for being so circuitous in the same No, no, but, this is a very um, helpful background. So I met some um, mostly American, but you know, non-Chinese lawyers in uh, China who had always had a real passion for the language. And so they were near native in their speaking, and they could do documents, uh, draft and read in Chinese. For me, I could never get to that level because I never had had a passion for the language. For me, it was always a tool that I wanted to put in my toolbox. And the difference was these people had spent Friday and Saturday nights, instead of going out, studying Chinese and you know, practicing. That was not me. So um, it was, it was, look, it's definitely helpful, but I was never, uh, you know, in, in practicing law, it was definitely helpful, but I was never somebody who got, you know, who, who would be able to handle uh, the Chinese portions of a transaction. So you um, weren't drafting I, documents in, in Mandarin. No. And a lot of the documents that we dealt with, especially if they involved foreign uh, acquirers or uh, foreign joint venture partners, a lot of those were in English and they would be translated into Mandarin. So that part was that part was fine. But to do the, you know, ironically, to do the due diligence and read through the government filings and all these other documents that went to uh, the Chinese, um, they often called them legal uh, consultants because they didn't have JDs from the states, so they weren't, uh, and they weren't at least at that time accorded full associate status at uh, foreign law firms. Huh. Quite interesting. So, how do you go from being a lawyer at Jones Day in Shanghai to launching your own love box self storage startup in China? How does something like that come about? Well, like everything else at this stage of my life, uh, in, in a very circuitous manner. What I actually, when I left Jones Day after not quite a year and a half, I actually intended to set up um, a wealth management firm. And it was going to technically or legally be based in Singapore, but I was going to look to manage offshore, so non-China assets or wealth of Chinese entrepreneurs, primarily based in tier three and tier four cities. And kind of my thinking along these lines was they that I think with the offshore wealth, they were looking for something that was less volatile, um, safer. And if I stuck to tier three, tier four cities, I wouldn't be competing with the bankers from UBS and Credit Suisse so much. And I was going to be working with UBS. I was was actually going to be the custodian of the assets. But anyway, um, I was in the process of setting that up. Um, during that time, I co-authored 
doing business in China for dummies, which was really a foreign direct investment uh, primer. You know, I think the four dummies title really gives it short shrift. But um, the uh, and that was a project that was in the works since before I left to move to China that time. But, yeah, I was in the process of setting this firm up and two things were happening. You know, one, a good friend of mine was getting ready to launch a self-storage firm in Shanghai. And I introduced him to a family member of mine who had owned self-storage in uh, the U.S. And when we sat down for dinner with uh, that um, ex-uncle, he had divorced out of the family, he said, of all the investments I've made in my life, self-storage is by far the best. Over 17 years, 50% cash-on-cash return, and that doesn't even include the land appreciation. So now I'm thinking, like, whoa, you know, and especially if we could be the first in China. Um, so I decided I would be a passive investor, but a few weeks later that flipped to um, majority active investor, and eventually that turned into this guy needed me to buy him out. But that was while that was happening, I was also having doubts about whether I really wanted to spend my time hanging out with factory owners in tier three, tier four cities, because these are undoubtedly some smart people. But, you know, I, I just had this vision, you know, and I especially at the time in Shanghai, I, I had a real soft spot for for animals, you know, and you just see them mistreated on the streets all the time. And I just kept telling myself. In addition to the just relentless drinking and karaoke or whatever, I mean, that's kind of a euphemism there, but that I'd have to um, endure, that I would see these guys do some something that, you know, would really, really bother me. Like I'd see, a, I just kind of pictured, I'd see a guy about to get into the back of his S class and he'd see a stray dog lying there and he'd go up and kick it and laugh. And I just, I just had this vision in my mind that, then there, I would have to make a choice between sort of playing it off or just being like, man, what are you doing? Like, that is so wrong. And I don't know why that was the, the image that kept going through my mind. But when I, when I started thinking, on the other hand, about how self-storage could actually be, because it was going to be, you know, we were the ones starting it in, in China, how could actually, it would actually be a near luxury service. You know, we were going for the Chinese who were buying Cartier jewelry or something, you know, and um, as opposed to it being the Joe Sixpack kind of service in the U.S. And we, we felt that we could actually build a strong near luxury consumer brand in self-storage there as opposed to, you know, in the U.S. Like nobody knows, can remember the name of their self-storage company because it's so fragmented. Um, so on one hand, the self-storage thing was exciting. And on the other hand, I was having genuine second or third thoughts about whether I wanted to manage uh, manage wealth of uh, tier three, tier four um, factory owners. So I decided, hey, this seems like fun and jumped in with both feet to self-storage and it pretty quickly became unfun. But uh, that was all part of the journey. So that leads to the obvious question from Japan to law school to Shanghai to self-storage, to, to writing a book, doing business in China for dummies, none of this has anything to do with short selling. How did this early experience color what was to come? Sure. Well, 
I had grown up in the markets. My father was a, an institutional salesperson and equity analyst. He focused on high-growth micro-cap companies. Um, I mean, earlier in his career, he'd been early on McDonald's and I think even H&R Block. But um, as market caps increased uh, across the board, what he focused on in dollar terms didn't. So kind of went from, you know, not ridiculously small to almost ridiculously small in terms of the market caps. But, um, you know, he's... He, he's an eternal optimist. Like he always, and I saw this consistently inside and outside the markets, he would see the best in people. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I was starting to feel at times that there were people in my father's life who took advantage of that and that he was often um, you know, beguiled by charisma and what ended up happening, I mean, there were, there were then objective ways of, you know, of, of measuring this in that in the, during the period of 99 through 02, we were being lied to and used by a number of managements of companies that my father and then my father and I um, were, had, had strong buys on or speculative buys or whatever. I mean, we... Now, we thought that we were close with management, and back then, I think managements or insiders had 45 days to file their forms for, and so we noted some egregious behavior where we'd take um, managements on non-deal roadshows. I mean, some of our clients would come in and just buy the thing up in size. Like, I remember, you know, Fidelity was just... You know, the way my father described it at the time, a bull in a china shop, you know, the way they would buy. <laughs> Literally. But then we'd see these Form 4 or these Forms 4 that, oh, well, the CEO and COO just sold several million dollars worth of stock right after going on the non-deal roadshow while our clients were buying. And it was one of my father's precepts that he, quote, put his money where his mouth is. So he was long all of these things personally in size that he was recommending clients buy. And so with my tiny little nest egg, I, I too was. And these companies started blowing up. And I, I think the most egregious example was a company called Rentway, which actually wasn't that small. I think it was about a $600 million market cap at the time. And I developed um, a couple of institutional clients, I think probably 24 at the time, and so we were taking uh, the CFO of Rentway on a non-deal roadshow. We're sitting in this conference room at this one client I developed, a reasonable-sized money, uh, or, you know, mutual fund manager in uh, LA. And the CFO the time at that time of uh, Rentway, Jeff Conway, looked my client in the eyes and said to her, pointing at my father, "In the 17 quarters Bill has been following us, we never missed one of his estimates." That's how good a handle we have on our numbers. But one or two weeks later, when my father was supposed to meet Jeff in New York, he wasn't there, and the stock was halted. And it turned out that, oh, my God, it was an accounting fraud. <laughs> and old Jeff pleaded guilty. Um, so did the controller beneath him, and I think one other person. And I don't know. I mean, this was just salt in the wounds, but I think Jeff got sentenced fewer years in prison than the people beneath him. But it was just this really embittering time where, 
you know, it wasn't only happening to us. This was at the same time that Enron had happened and WorldCom and HealthSouth, uh, Tyco. Um, it just, you know, seemed like top to bottom. The market was filled with liars. And I don't know, you know, the other thing that my father had noted at the time was I was also quick to sell when my stocks had gone up. You know, I said, wow, you know, like we were hoping for a 30 percent Kager and I've gotten 50 percent in nine months, you know, like, hey, I'm out. And yeah, I mean, like some of these things, it was the wrong thing to do um, in retrospect. But I also had that I had that very I'm going to just abuse the English language here, but very risk managey type of mindset. So I think if you combine that with the um, bitterness that I was starting to feel toward the system um, and our place pecking order, which I, as you know, quasi sell side equity research, I, I kind of started to view us at the very bottom. Um, I wanted out of the markets, but my father's kind of one of his parting comments to me was, maybe you'd be a good short seller. <laughs> and I said, well, do you know any? He's like, well, not really. I mean, there's this guy up in San Francisco named uh, John Gruber who does some, but I don't know. You can call him. And I said, nah, I'm going to law school. So that was, you know, that was really the background. And I'll pause here, but, you know, I, I, I was totally done with markets until, you know, by accident, 2009. Let's talk a little bit about what you were just saying about um, how 2009 and 2010 changed your life. You took a trip to China Tell us about that, uh, and I believe Orient Paper was the company uh, involved? Sure. Well, at the time, I was still living in Shanghai. Um, I had the self-storage business, and it had taught me many lessons, but one of them was that as an entrepreneur, you really need to define, at least as a beginning entrepreneur, you really need to define success as not failing. So what that means is, I was struggling every day to not go out of business. And my father had gotten really interested in a number of these China-based companies that had gone public in the U.S. via reverse merger. And he went to one of the Roth conferences and came back from that, like, really bold up about it. And um, he was mentioning, you know, we're talking by phone, and he's mentioning several companies. And I, I'm, I'm sitting there in China struggling to keep this business from folding. You know, my wife and I were just kind of, you know, we joke about this period of time in our life, but it's really not a half joke, but, or it's really not, it's not a joke, but, you know, we were drinking pretty heavily. Like every night was just kind of like, yeah, let's go, let's go meet up with some other entrepreneur friends and all numb ourselves to, you know, how badly we're getting punched in the face every day. <laughs> and, um, my father wanted me to look at or help him diligence um, some of these companies. And I don't know, again, I just wasn't enthusiastic about this. But I, my expectation at the time, and all, pretty much all the dominoes had fallen for me um, in the investing business at that point. I didn't trust management. <laughs> I knew better than to trust bankers. I, I realized I'd realized that directors are, you know, incompetent um, and lawyers are basically just there to serve the 
the managements and, and their kind of weapons to be used against curious shareholders. But I thought that auditors, I like probably 99% of the investing public, thought that auditors were there to perform an anti-fraud function. And I'm not being facetious when I say this, but I know now that that is not actually the mandate. But I did not know that when my father brought up Orient Paper. So um, at this time in China in my life, I was quite skeptical of what went on in China. Um, Not only had I co-authored the book Doing Business in China for Dummies, which involved a lot of great research, and not only had I seen number of joint ventures and, um, and other direct investments go bad for foreigners. But I'd also chaired the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai's Entrepreneurs Committee, and most of my friends were foreign entrepreneurs. So one thing about me is I'm pretty good at absorbing and internalizing experiences of others. And um, so I guess I was seeing the matrix at this point in China, but I didn't quite know it yet. Um, and my father wanted me to go look at Orient Paper. So I was thinking, okay, here's going to – the problem here, if there's going to be a problem, which there probably is, but really the question is, is the guy stealing an unacceptable amount of money out of the company? I assumed that the business would be real, that the profits would be largely real, but, yeah, is he you know, using this too much for his own benefit? Wait, wait, let me interrupt you right here. An unacceptable, is the guy stealing an unacceptable amount of money? In China, is there an acceptable amount of money management can steal? Um, yeah, I mean, this, this is a question that I remember my uh, entrepreneur friends and I used to occasionally when we'd get together to numb ourselves, um, we used to discuss. And so the question was, okay, what do you think the average amount of money stolen is when the capital is provided by outside financing, whether it's the government, a loan, or equity investment. And the consensus, like to a person, was if we're being kind, 20%. Really? Wow. Probably more like 30% in the case of something that's good and functional. And so we we used to then laugh and apply that multiplier to the Shanghai World Expo. That was uh, that took place in 2010, and it was so funny because it was like Shanghai's answer to the Olympics. And Shanghai government bragged that it was spending, I think, 80 billion U.S. to prepare. So we used to just laugh and say, like, yeah, this is why Shanghai wanted this. You know, it's like if we're being kind, $16 billion of graft. Like, that is so huge, man. Like, foreign bank accounts and, you know, and apartments in Hong Kong are just going to be, like, it's going to be lit, man. Like, these things are going to, the money's going to be pouring in. So that was our view of what actually works in China is, and I used to say at the time also that the difference between China and all of these other basket case EMs and FMs is in China, they didn't steal so much that they couldn't build the road. Like they understood the right <laughs> level of corruption there. Right. You know, this they, is this they, is the level of graft that works road. best. Yeah, they 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 had like optimized for graft. <laughs> so 
So that was basically the question, you know, was, was Chairman Leo going to be on the right side of that line or was he going to be over the top? And the first indicator I had that something could be really wrong was in the first conversation that I had with my father about it. He had just come back from this Roth conference, at, I think, in Florida, and that's where he'd heard about it and met some of the people around Orient Paper, um, you know, American you know, promoter types and stuff. And my father's telling me that, yeah, they say, uh, they say Chairman Liu is uh, different from other Chinese company chairmen. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. And my father's telling me that. I just, I have this memory of being in my apartment in Shanghai. It's late at night. Like, I just really don't care. But as soon as he said that, I perked up. And I, said, I was like, look, I'm sure none of that is true. But even if it were, the fact that this is what's propagating at the conference gives me some pause because and I told him this, I said, this indicates to me that somebody is trying to game American investor psychology. Like this right. is what we want to hear. Isn't it? He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. You know, my father told me, Oh, keep an open mind and whatever. And I said, I will, but this is already a red flag. So, so what'd you so find at Orient paper? Well, the first thing was I ended up having lunch in LA few weeks later with the CFO and my father. I was back home for Thanksgiving. And, you know, like all good China-based companies, the CFO sat in the U.S. and, you know, maybe flew over there like four times a year. And uh, the company was in, about to raise money and to purportedly build uh, a new, uh, new factory building with two new production lines. I remember asking the CFO what I thought were some basic questions. Okay, well, um, what's the what's the cost of the building versus the cost of the machinery? Uh, I don't know. Well, what do you anticipate the per square meter construction cost to be? Huh, that's a good question. I don't know. Well, what about the actual machinery? Huh, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. It was just, you know, it was like this wasn't a real CFO, and I could see through it. And then the real red flags came when um, I was talking about I was asking about another anticipated investment that the company was supposed to make. They were supposedly going to buy this uh, photographic paper um, uh, manufacturing line. And the CFO said, oh, well, actually, Chairman Leo already bought it, and he's holding it in trust for the company, and then the company is going to buy it from him. And I almost spit my lunch up. And I said, wait, what? What? You, he's selling it to the company? Well, I mean, well, well at cost, of course, right? There's no markup well, there. So that, so then, yeah, so that was one of the questions that then, you know, that was like maybe the second question was, well, what did he pay for it? Oh, I don't know, but, um, but you know, we're buying it at a fair price. We're having it appraised by a third-party appraiser. Huh, okay. Um, what, uh, like one of the big four or American appraisal? <laughs> who's, the, who's the appraiser? Um, I think it's a local Chinese firm in Baoding. What? Why would it be a local firm and not a big four or, or American appraisal or firm like that? Um, because they're experts in this type of, uh, uh, this type of manufacturing uh, equipment. You know, and I'm just thinking, no way. <laughs> like, this is, okay, there's, this is hyper, like, this is corrupt. I knew that right then and there. But, um Again, it goes to this question of 
is Chairman Liu stealing too much money, or is it like, you know, will they still build the road? So um, anyway, I said to him, the CFO at the end of the, the meal, um, I said, look, I'm, I'm happy to go up in early January. I'm going to bring um, a consultant with me who really understands manufacturing, and we're going to take a much harder look at this company, your company, than anybody else has before. I guarantee you that. So if there is any reason Chairman Leo would have to not want us to look at the company under the microscope, just come up with an excuse, okay? Just tell me, man, eh, you know, something came up or whatever, all right? And we won't do it. You know, and the CFO, like, he just didn't know what he was getting into. And he's like, oh, well, no, I'm sure Chairman Leo would really look forward to that. And, you know, I'd want to know, too. Well, <laughs> these arrogant idiots, you know, welcomed us to uh, Bao Ding in um, early January of uh, 2010. And... What we saw was the Potemkin factory. I mean, a company that would, was about to re- report its 2009 revenue of $103 million, best I was ultimately able to determine was real revenue was only $2.5, $3 million. And it was funny because I, I, I brought a consultant up with me. Um, and, uh, I mean, this trip was just bizarre. But they had had on the balance sheet, um, raw materials uh, of $5 million. So what, what Orient Paper produced is corrugating medium. So when you look, you know, if you cut into a box and you see that wavy stuff right. inside the box layers, that's corrugating medium. And that is made with old cardboard. So, um, you know, just throwing away cardboard, you recycle it, and you make it into medium. So they had on the balance sheet, I think, about $5 million of raw materials inventory. And when, when we're at the, at the, the facility, there's just like these big trash heaps there. Just, you know, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, just a large amount of trash heaps. And the consultant I was with is wearing like a, you know, Xenia overcoat. And he climbs to the top of a trash heap, looks around, comes down and says to me, if this is worth $5 million, the world's a much richer place than I ever knew. And, I mean, it was just ridiculous statement after ridiculous statement. This equipment was obviously very old. I mean, if we were being generous, early 90s, it had, you know, it had like the typical state-owned enterprise slogans um, painted on it. So it was probably late 80s um, vintage, but basically throwaway from SOEs. And it was being carried on the balance sheet at, I think, like $60 million. Um, they said that they had six lines. They were only able to show us two. The second line we suspected was actually not producing paper, but was just looping around uh, finished paper. I mean, we couldn't tell. We were being very much rushed through um, the workshop at that point. There's water everywhere, like huh. on the folding tables. Okay, water is anathema to paper. Right. Like that's, you know, they just didn't have the, the air handling equipment that a like a moderately serious paper manufacturer would have. And there's so many red flags. And so the company's revenue and purported output had climbed significantly in 2009. And so we asked the chairman, consultant asked the chairman, 
he said, uh, so, okay, you know, uh, output last year was, was how many tons? And, you know, it was pretty big, I don't know, maybe 30, 40% increase versus 2008. And consultant then asked, uh, okay, did you, did you add a production line? How did you, how did you do that? And he said, oh, uh, process improvements. So afterward, <laughs> when, we're, when we're downloading this incredible experience that we're having and we're, you know, and we're talking about it, consultant said to me, he's like, yeah, you remember when I asked him, how did you boost production? And he said, process improvements? It's like, Carson, you were there. You were the, you looked around. Did you see anything new? Like even a new mop or bucket? No. Right. He's like, that's a total lie. So we, we realized, I mean, very quickly on, uh, on the visit that, no, this, like, this wasn't a question of, is the guy stealing? It, it was a question of, it was really just, well, it was a conclusion of, this is a Potemkin factory. This is not a real business. These numbers that they're reporting are total lies. Right. It's all fraud and, across the board. So, so what was yeah. the market cap and how large a short were you able to get off on that? So it was it was a hundred million market cap, and when I ended up publishing this report, and it like I, I didn't get right into it because here's the thing I I got into China with pretty decent nest egg for a thirty year old, um, but I had incinerated it in self storage, and I was now beyond that like two hundred thousand dollars in debt and climbing. That I was borrowing from my father. So I had no money to short this thing. And I asked my father, hey, you know, should we short it and put out a report? My father literally had never sold a stock short in his life. And he said he was not interested. Um, and good luck to me. Um, then I called some other people who I knew uh, from nine years earlier or so in the, in the markets and to see if they wanted to take a short position and somehow compensate me. And no, nah, nobody was into that. Um, so I really didn't have a model business model and they just switched auditors to BDO limited in Hong Kong. They'd been audited by some Utah based accounting firm that it would later turn out did not even have a valid PCAOB uh, registration, but didn't know that at the time. Um, but I figured, okay, well, you know, this is like one of these, it's probably like Chinese organized crime met up with U.S. organized crime. So I was really thinking about this from a 1990s market, you know, framework right. um, when I started growing up there. So, but there's no way they're going to get an unqualified audit opinion. Wrong. So in early April of 2010, I realized they had gotten an unqualified audit opinion. I'd forgotten about the company for a while because I just had, you know, no economic model here. So um, I decided... <laughs> To produce a report that I don't know would explain that this thing's a fraud, and I didn't. There was no template for me to write this report. It just kind of made the, the template up myself. A combination of what I used to write when I worked with my father and how I learned to write as a lawyer, and we researched it um, and disclosed that we were short. Now I was I owned two thousand dollars worth of puts and. That consultant also owned $2,000 worth of puts. I'd funded them mine from my credit card, and I think he'd basically done the same thing because uh, he, he, he owned a nascent factory in China that was never able to get off the ground, and he was constantly embroiled in 
you know, with brawls with bow steel, courtroom brawls, et cetera. So um, at that point, you know, I didn't really, my thinking was, hey, I've got nothing to lose. I mean, the self-storage facility, like this thing is just a liability. What are they going to do? Take the liability from me? By all means, you know, you can have it. So it, it, it subsequently, when I looked back on this, I realized, there's a real power in having nothing to lose. Sure. So I just threw the ball as far down the field as I could. And the one thing that I had hoped for, I hoped these guys would think that I had a sizable short position because I just, look, I knew I was confident I would win a litigation, but if they knew that I really had no money at all, they would have sued me anyway and just raked me over the coals. Right. Um, and in terms of legal fees. So I just, it was a leap of faith that I was going to be able to bluff my way out of getting sued. <laughs> and um, it paid and off. what happened? So, well, stock went down day after we published a trough of 55, down 55%. Company came back, said my father and I had tried to extort them, and they refused. And, you know, and then when it was like, man, you're, you know, because I was really nervous about that report. To the moment I pushed the button. I mean, I knew everything in there was factual. I knew exactly what was going on, but I gut checked myself so many times because, like, this, it's a big deal, man. Going right. out and saying this company is, is a zero and they're lying. But that nervousness entirely disappeared when they came back and lied. I, I don't know that I needed extra conviction. I mean, I didn't, but. The moment they started making stuff up about my father and me, then it was just like, you know, I mean, I, I was just like, I'm bringing you guys down. Like, It, it changes you know, the it, dynamics because suddenly they go from minor grifters with a, a tendency to exaggerate to, oh, you guys are just next level criminals. This is a zero. You're total frauds. And I'm going to double down. Is it, Am I hearing that right? Well, it went from... Somewhat, but it, it went more from fighting scared in a way uh -huh. um, to fighting with fury. And so it was um, a tell. They revealed that they were scammers, and they knew they were scammers, and they knew you knew they were scammers. Right. And yeah, and then they started like lying about other things, trying to put the the toothpaste back in the tube. And um, but yeah, it was. You know, it was really, and it was right after that that um, just, you know, I mean, the report went viral. Um, and I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, you know, wow, great report. Somebody's finally exposed this stuff. This is systemic. Look at this company. Look at that company. Wow. And I just started cracking open 10Ks, and it was just obvious, you know, like, that all of these things that I was looking at, these things were frauds. I mean, and it was just really obvious from the 10Ks. I mean, I skipped over the part about us reading the Orient paper filings before we went up there. Right. We were in the airport waiting for our flight, and, and I mean, we just kept laughing out loud at different times. But, again, we didn't get that this thing was going to be a 95%-plus lie. You know, that wasn't apparent until we actually got on site. How so, far did the stock yeah. ultimately fall? Um, I mean, the stock ended up getting down to below a dollar at times. I mean, it, there was this back and forth, right, where, you know, they would come out with a press release and stock would go back up. I, it had been eight 
and a half when we published. Um, so then it was kind of range bound between four and six. And then uh, when we did our second or did our second report, or sorry, report on second company, Rhino International, right. that company had the misfortune of making the mistake of the CEO admitting to the auditor that uh, there were, quote, <laughs> some problems with the contract, and the stock was very quickly delisted. So after Rhino went down, um, I think Orient Paper sold off even more because the people who'd been skeptical of us were less skeptical of us. It, it, and validity to the prior report. So, so now you have Orient Paper and Rhino. When does, do you say, hey, this is a real business. I need to form a company. Well, I formed a I formed an entity at the outset before publishing right. my first. Remember, I was a lawyer for, for legal protection. Right, you want that yeah. shield. But when did you say I have a finance research business and potential hedge fund here that there's money to be made betting against these companies? Well, I, it was right after Orient Paper that I realized that um, I came to the states for. Uh, two trips. One of them was about a month. And at that point in time, I was trying to, by then I realized this is systemic with these China names. And I was trying to figure out what the business model would be. Um, could we do consulting for investment banks that were looking to bring companies in China public? No, pretty quickly, <laughs> those doors slammed in our faces. Um, they didn't want diligence, guys. Um then, then yeah, I was thinking, okay, well, um, should I do this on a subscription basis? And I had there was a uh, company that sells um, you know, subscription research that was saying, yeah, look, you know, we'll distribute your research and da da da, and you know, and I was looking at the numbers and like, yeah, maybe I could take this to you know a million or more in my pocket a year, maybe. Um, then uh, there was also a very large hedge fund that said. Yeah, look, we want exclusive access to your ideas, and you know we'll pay you uh, for those. And but I kept coming back to this idea of doing it publicly and trying to have some cat. You know, if I could get capital to short these things and then publish. And you know, there were a few. You know, this was a this was a decision that took I don't know some time to make because I. I realized that that was going to be the much more, um, uh, much more stressful path. I will get sued. Regulators, you know, I should assume that regulators will look at me skeptically every time we publish a report. But I felt like if I'm just providing subscription research to institutions um, identifying various frauds in China, I mean, one issue is. How valuable is the research if these things never go down? I mean, right. a fraud can flourish in the markets until the markets figure out it's not a fraud. So I did question the viability over the uh, long term of that business model. But the other thing was, it just, I mean, it just seemed a little hollow as well because I felt like, hey, if I'm publishing this openly, I can hold these guys accountable, right? But I'm just sending this to, you know, blah, blah, blah hedge fund. Um, for you know, 50k a year uh, from that fund, I don't know who's going to hold them accountable. Like, why would this matter? Huh. So, based on that, I said, all right, I got you know, like, let me figure out a way to get some capital and then start shorting these publicly. 
And so I made that decision. You know, I realized there was a business to do, and that was the model I wanted to pursue. And I probably made that decision by late August, early September of 2010. Huh, quite, quite interesting. Let, let's talk uh, a little more about what's going on in China. Um, after that Orient paper experience, you've called for many Chinese firms that are listed in the U.S. to be delisted. Tell us why. They literally cannot be held. The people behind these companies literally cannot be held accountable. Not only that, they can't actually be investigated. I mean, that's PRC law that specifically prohibits any PRC-based person or entity from cooperating with an overseas regulatory investigation without the express prior consent of the China Securities Regulatory Commission, which, you know, except in the exceptional case of something like Luckin, where the auditor already called it a fraud, is just not forthcoming. So you not only can you not hold the individuals to account, you cannot investigate them. And I think Luckin's a great example here because Luckin raised, I think, about $800 million from the U.S. markets. And then the auditor, after we you know, republished somebody else's research and said that it checked out to us, um, the auditor, uh, EY, confirmed that this thing was a fraud. And so Luckin collapsed. And, um, but the, the people, Luckin ultimately settled with the SEC. And out of the $800 million that it raised from U.S. markets, I think it paid to the SEC $140 million. And that's, like, by far the most the SEC has ever gotten out of one of these China frauds. And the best part is, Luckin raised that money with a bond issuance in China by, I think, $150 million U.S. <laughs> that's a good deal. You, so you raise $150 million yeah. in bonds to pay for the fraud you perpetrated, raising $800 million in equity. Yeah, so I mean, like, I, look, I pre said, okay, 140 out of 800, that's the biggest vig any one of these guys has had to pay in absolute terms and a percentage. And it's not that bad of vig, it's sub 20%. Um, Still leaves you with over you, half a billion dollars, right? Yeah, I mean, considering you stole the money, um, it's not bad. But, um, but no, this, you know, these guys are better operators than that. But the, the, the issue, I mean, the reality is, um, we just can't hold them accountable. And so when you have that system, like it, and so then also look at this, you know, some people say, oh, you know, you're China basher, this and that. But the reality is China is an emerging market. China has a weak rule of law. China is a country riddled by corruption, both public sector and private sector. And all, so all of these things are facts. And when the regulators in the U.S. don't even have the ability to investigate, I mean, of course, these guys are going to come over here and lie and steal the money. Because why wouldn't they? The proposition, if you're sitting in China and, you know, and you've got a business and, you know, and like you meet the right people who say, hey, you know, we can sex this thing up and, you know, bring it public, blah, blah, blah. You're thinking, oh, okay. Well, heads I win, tails I don't lose. So why wouldn't you go and lie? And the other thing is that I, I think is more you know, one of the changes that I've noticed in the uh, 11 years 
that I've been doing this. Um, back then, when we first started publishing, um, the Chinese guys were not sophisticated with respect to the market. Um, they didn't really get how things traded. Um, and they, yeah, I mean, they, they got fraud, but the frauds were very crude, basic frauds where you invent counterparty, you invent customers and invent suppliers. Um, the frauds today, mostly more sophisticated. They're usually, there's usually more reality to the businesses. Um, usually, uh, GSX is an, an exception, but, um, they, they're, but I, but I feel like a lot of these stocks are manipulated and they're manipulated in very sophisticated ways. Um, We're going to circle back to that. I want to talk about some manipulation, but before we leave the SEC, um, how have they responded to your urging that they delist firms that can't be monitored or can't even be audited? Well, the, there was a bill that was enacted and signed into law by President Trump called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, and it provides that if companies in a country um, are not subject, if the auditors are not able to be inspected by the PCAOB, then these companies will be delisted within two years or you know, two or three years after the uh, enactment of the bill. And it was obviously targeted to China, but that's the wrong issue to focus on. And China might, I've long held the theory that China would give uh, on the PCAOB inspections because that's not really going to be an effective anti-fraud tool, um, just inspecting these auditors. Like, who cares? They're, the PCAOB is going to be messed with during these inspections right. the same way everybody is messed with whoever goes over to check out a Chinese company. But um, so, well, I well, how do they mess with you? That's that's interesting. You say that. Let Let's digress here. Did were you harassed? Were you followed? Did you ever feel that you were in danger? When I say when I say messed with, I just mean fooled and in stymied and stonewalled. I mean that that's what no I mean. cooperation. Well, it's fake cooperation, right? Like that. That was the that was the thing that was beautiful about most of these companies, and still is. It's it's the fake transparency because. One of the fundamental problems the SEC has in one of these investigations, and anybody has, is, first of all, everything's in Chinese. So right. the vast majority of us in the U.S. and who work at the PCAOB don't understand Chinese, and you need things translated. Translation is incredibly resource-intensive. So it's one thing, I mean, when you look at it from the SEC perspective, the costs of these investigations are super high for them. And again, the recoveries and the probabilities of recoveries are so low. So that's one reason, I mean, like genuinely, the SEC Enforcement Division hates investigating these China-based companies. Um, but you, you'd have the same problem with PCAOB. Very few of the people would speak Chinese. Um, they'd be jet lagged. They would have the Chinese Ministry of Finance people because it's clear like that's the only framework China would ever allow this to happen. Shadowing them, being there, documents would be switched out, would be missing. There would be all kinds of excuses like, oh, well, you don't understand how it is in China. Like this, you know, we have to give this document over here. Oh, let's, you know, take these guys, you know, to the other side of town and see if we can find this document at the Ministry of Finance. Oh, no, it's not here. Oh, gee, guys, I'm sorry. Hey, how about we go and you know, go to lunch and get drunk? I mean, it's like this is what I envision happening is that the, their time would be wasted and they wouldn't understand what's going on. 
And, like, at the end of the trip, they would get back to Washington and just say, like, I don't know what the F happened, man. Like, I don't know. We were there, but. Wouldn't it be more effective to say these are the minimum listing requirements in the United States, and if you don't jump through these hoops, you can't be listed here, as opposed to going through that process? I mean, it's a privilege to be listed here, and you have to do X and Y and Z. Why not take that approach? Well, I think, you know problem that we face look let's be real here okay i mean my my view is that almost all of the companies if not all the companies listed in the u.s from china are committing some level of fraud they cannot be held accountable now i think we could instead focus on this uh, this article 177 of the amended securities law of the of the prc that went into effect in march of last year and that is the article that expressly prohibits cooperation with foreign uh, regulatory investigations into publicly traded companies. That did not exist. That was not codified formally until uh, the adoption of that, re- of that revision. So before then, it was kind of hard to, to say that, well, we, you know, we need to formulate a policy that says companies from China may not list here uh, because we would, you know, it's like, well, you know, aside from the fact that everybody squishy. knows these things are committing fraud on a widespread basis, like what can you point to in law? Because like in the U.S., you know, we're really focused on like, you know, what's the, you know, like give me a bright line definition of what may and what may not be listed. But now you have Article 177. So I think that any country that codifies a middle finger to U.S. in you know regulatory bodies in its law de facto should not be allowed to have its, you know, companies whose operations are substantially based there listed in the U.S. That, um, that makes perfect so sense, like, but but I have to point out that it's created an environment that has allowed you and your firm to come up with some spectacular shorts. So so let's quickly go over some of your greatest hits. Sino Forest down 85% after your report. We mentioned Rhino, 67% drop before it was delisted. Tell us about... Rhino was delisted, too. Yep. Oh, they so were. We have okay. eight, yeah, we have eight delistings globally, seven of which are from China, and I'm not including Luckin. We might be about to get our ninth delisting in France, by the way. So, uh, so what happens when you own a put and a company is delisted? What is that put worth at that point? Yeah, well, that was that was interesting in the early days um, because <laughs> these stocks would be halted for uh, multiple months, and you know we had puts going into put expiry. And so you have to decide whether you want to exercise them or not. And um, we ended up, I mean, the, the one time this really happened to us was on China Media Express, which was the uh, third company on which we wrote would become the second delisting. And we had, uh, we had puts um, that expired during the halt. So we exercised the puts. But then, and this happened to a lot of, uh, at, that, at the time I was using, re, you know, like retail investor accounts. This happened to a lot of retail guys at this time. When, um, so we're effectively short, and the the broker came back to us and said, "Oh, listen, you know, we need uh, we need you to deposit more margin. So, based on the last print of the stock, when this thing starts trading again, you know, you're now short, you know, like blah number of shares. That's you know, five hundred thousand uh, dollars worth of stock. Um, we want two hundred percent margin. So we need you to pump your account up." Um, you know, throw another 500,000 in there. And, you know, like if 
that actually, I mean, that actually screwed me up. I was very fortunate that I got, um, I got a loan from somebody who, uh, you know, was, I mean, I mean, offered it to me just when I was lamenting, I wasn't asking for the loan. And, um, and so I was able to make money that way. But I think a lot of retail got shafted on those things. And the other thing that was problematic was because when the stock, the, the brokers realized that once the stock started trading, because there were all of these put options that had been exercised, everybody was going to be naked short. And so unlike when you're dealing with an institutional counterparty, you know, who would say like, all right, man, look, I get it. The stock's going to go down maybe after some initial volatility. Once it's unhalted, you know, we'll kick, you know, we'll be chill and we're not going to buy you in right away. Right. We'll wait till the afternoon to figure it out. Like that's how an institutional counterparty works. The retail right. counterparties were like, you will be bought in as soon as it resumes trading. So, Want, want to mention the broker who who was so nice to their clients? Oh, I mean, I can't even remember. Um, I mean, the, the, we weren't dealing with Fidelity, but I heard. I mean, Fidelity was a nightmare. Fidelity was increasing the um, the borrow costs during halts on all of these things. I mean, I think they jacked them, you know, from like ninety percent to one hundred ninety percent annually. So Fido was sucking people dry. Um, I mean, on a halt for a company know, about to be delisted seems sort of uh, yeah. doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, and you mentioned manipulation. Are you implying that for targets of yours like GSX or TAL Education, do you think the Chinese government are propping up those stocks? Well, God, you know, what goes on behind the curtain in China is very difficult to say. And there's also... Um, the lines between government and government actors and private sector actors are very blurry at times. So, but there's just funky, funky trading in a lot of these things. And it wasn't only GSX, um, a lot of other China names. And then the final thing that I'll say on this, nobody else <laughs> I know talks about this, but I suspect that these companies water their stock all day long. And Meaning, here's how they do when it. you say water, do, explain that. Well, that's, you know, in the conventional sense, watering stock is issuing shares to, you know, people, insiders in their proxies, but without disclosing, without recording those shares as having been issued. But what happens, what I think happens here that makes it so easy is you have to keep in mind that these companies are all domiciled in Cayman, or some are BVI, but they're, you know, they're legally domiciled in Cayman or BVI. And their shares don't trade on the U.S. exchanges. It's their American depository receipts or American depository shares. So what basically happens is if you have a Cayman share, you take it to the depository agent and it's, you know, funged, exchanged into an ADR, ADS that may be traded on the exchanges. But the question I've had is, who the hell is keeping track of these Cayman shares that are coming to the that, that are that are being given to the depository agents? And look, I don't know the answer because this is really arcane aspects of of plumbing. But I suspect nobody. I mean, who's these are Cayman share registries? Okay, that's that's the whole point of Cayman is that everything about in domiciled companies is secret, especially the share registries. What is there? I've asked some people, and nobody's ever been able to answer 
me what safeguards are in place that would prevent these companies from doing that or prevent the insiders from doing that. And so I'm of this view that our entrepreneurial friends in China are so entrepreneurial that in many cases, not only are they completely lying about the financials of the company, but they're also manipulating the stock and they're also watering the stock. Meaning I mean, the share count is much higher than officially recorded. Yes, or that the yes, that the, the shares outstanding are because I've seen in the past, I first started asking this question in 2011 or 12 because I could see that the ADS counts were rising a lot faster than the shares outstanding, meaning they come the shares that the company has issued. And now that's not unexplainable. That doesn't in and of itself mean that there's watering because as you have more legit Cayman shareholders funds their stock into ADRs and ADSs to sell it, you'll see that. But I just remember noting that some of these increases, the deltas, you know, like the ADS accounts were growing exponentially. And, you know, and the, and the shares outstanding, the Cayman shares weren't growing that that much. And that's when it dawned on me. It's like, look, I've, been, I've lived in that country six years total. I've done business there. They're not going to stop at just like it just committing fraud with respect to the financials. Like, that would be stupid. That would be leaving money on the table. I mean, quite <laughs> frankly, if this was the life you'd chosen to be a crook um, of this sort, you would not stop at that alone. You would manipulate the stocks. You look. You would water the stock. You would do every single thing you could do. And I just don't think the, that you could get away with. And the mechanisms, look, one of the problems that we have with stock manipulation in the U.S. is that it's so much stock trading is done algorithmically. Okay, the SEC is staffed by lawyers and accountants. Right, we need not quants. people who are NSA. We need people who have NSA-type skills to be inside the SEC to monitor trading, whether it's China-based manipulation or or just somewhere else. That, I, that, I, that's how manipulation occurs. And we, I mean, who's who with those skills? You know, Stanford computer science graduate is going to go work for the SEC. No, not going to happen. Like nobody I, at this point. I, I I never heard accounting fraud described as a gateway drug. It it's just the. <laughs> The entry to to uh, more fraud. One of the things I found interesting about your background is your relationship with Jeffrey's Financial Group um, CEO Rich Handler. Tell us a little bit about ha- how Rich Handler affected your career. <laughs> um, so yeah, I uh, all right. Um, Back in 2014, uh, it was clear to me that we were going to go into the fund management business at some point, and um, we were having a problem uh, finding institutional counterparties. And uh, because you know we were so controversial, so at that time and for a while after that, it was an annual ritual where Goldman would tell us like, no, and. Uh, and in late 2013, um, when my I was in the delivery room, my son was about to be born. Um, got the call from a prime brokered sales guy at a CS telling me that, well, the Reputation Risk Committee, something I never even heard of before, has met and said, no, we're we can't do business with you. So um, we're going to go with this guy Bill Huang instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, I mean, look, I even one time said to. Um, you know, I, I, had a, I had an account at a private bank that I had opened um, 
with full knowledge, uh, you know, the bank having full knowledge that I would be looking to do short selling, uh, short sales in it in advance of reports. And they said, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, and you get the same access to borrow as you get on the institutional side of the house. I mean, yeah, it's going to cost a little more, but, you know, it's otherwise the same thing. And then they decided after a little while that they were going to, you know, somebody in compliance was like, no, no, we have to get rid of this account. And, um, you know, and I said to my uh, private banker at the time, I was like, you, you know, because she, she was talking about how, well, you know, we're really focused on compliance now and you know, post-GFC. And I said, yeah, but we both know, right? And if I had a couple hundred million dollars, you guys would let me do anything I wanted. But whatever. <laughs> So that's the reality, right? Like so, that's so what was the long. advice Handler gave you? So I went. So I, I set up a meeting with him, and you know, I really didn't. Ex- I didn't know whether Jeffries would be interested in doing the business because they had a big. Uh, they were building their investment banking franchise in Asia, but I figured, you know, look, why not? Yeah, he he took the meeting, so you know that's cool, and. Um, you know, he knew a little bit about. He knew me by reputation. But um, he just started asking very, you know, direct questions like, okay, well, I mean, this is a stressful business, right? Like, you know, I mean, besides lawsuits, I mean, don't you get death threats? Yeah, I do. You do? I mean, you're married and you've got a kid at home? Yeah. And, you know, and, he just, and, and, and he's just, you know, and I told him how, you know, like Goldman, you know, hated us and these other guys, you know, hated us. And, and he just said to me, he's like... He, he said, why do you do this, man? You're, you're crazy. And, and I don't mean that in the ha-ha, you know, funny way. I mean, really, why are you doing this? I think you're addicted to the attention. He said, you've got all these guys like Goldman Sachs and others with their knives out waiting to stab you in the back the moment that they can. You get death threats when you've got a young family at home. You know, you, you get lawsuits. You're telling me you don't sleep well ever. Why are you doing this? Seriously. I mean, is this going to, at this point in your life, the kind of money you're making? How much are you making? Is that, does that change your life? No, that doesn't change my life. Why do you do that? And so, you know, he, and then again, he repeated his assertion that he thought I was addicted to the attention. So I walked out of there. Um, yeah, look, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe a lot of people say this, but I, I think I really mean it. I very much appreciate when people speak to me directly and don't BS me. I mean, assuming they have something valuable to say. And I recognize that I just had one of those moments where um, a very smart, sophisticated person who understands um, to a reasonable degree what I do was telling me that this was a bad life decision uh, to continue, uh, continue in this business. And I really had to pause and consider that. And I did. I mean, look, maybe I told myself what I wanted to tell myself at the end of the day. Um, I disagreed with his assessment, but I took it very seriously. And I even talked about it internally with, um, because at that time, my team consisted of some people who I considered close friends. I mean, it still does, but... Um, these were people who were friends first and then became team members. And so I also felt like they were good people to help me evaluate what Rich had said. And um, How did you, how'd you apply that? Did you go from pure short to long short? What, what did you do to follow his advice? I didn't really change anything I was doing. <laughs> but it wasn't that I followed the advice. It's just 
that I felt uh, I'm somebody who's very focused on process and um, especially when it comes to making difficult decisions. And, um, you know, even if I don't change my mind, I, I always want to get more information and I want to get contrary perspectives because I understand my decision better and I understand the trade-offs better. And I just felt while Rich's advice didn't alter the outcomes, it improved the process and it helped me better understand why it is that I've chosen this as, as, as my path. Makes a lot of sense. So I know I only have you for a few minutes. Let, let's look at 2020 and 2021 and see what's made this past couple of years so, so challenging. Clearly 2020, there was a brief collapse and then straight up the rest of the year. How challenging of a year was it on the short side in 2020? Yeah, I, I really, I really hated uh, 2020, and I mean, part of it is um, I, you know, I, I definitely have a hard time separating my my feelings about the external environment from my you know feelings about what was happening business wise. Um, you know, I going back to a comment I made earlier about. Um, how I'm very good at absorbing other people's experience. Um, I think I'm. I think I'm very sensitive to the environment around me, especially very, very sensitive to risk, and um, and and trouble. And so, 2020 was just a year of. I mean, it was emotionally overwhelming for me, um, just based on all the misery. You know, I felt like my heart was breaking. Some, you know, more and more every day. And on top of that, business was, you know, like really, really hard. So we, I, you know, we were early. I was personally very early in the toilet paper trade in um, COVID. You know, I think it was like mid-January, sorry, it was late January when just stocked up on toilet paper and, you know, canned food and, you know, basically got ready to live in a bunker. And it was at the end of February, um, and markets in the U.S. hadn't yet reacted. And also, there's an interesting point here, because by late February, Hong Kong and mainland markets had largely recovered from their COVID dips. And we talk about the manipulation of the markets from China. China developed the IP to manipulate its markets back in 2015. Um, it tried to, the government had tried to novate the housing bubble or the real estate bubble into an equity bubble and pump up the equity bubble, but they didn't understand that those bubbles are harder uh, to keep going because you've got daily mark-to-markets right. and um, or marks-to-market. And anyway, but they, you know, at that time, they started throwing short sellers in prison or in jail temporarily, and they got the brokerage firms to go out and buy stocks, and I think they were pumping money into the, the government was pumping money directly into the market to keep it propped up to send to avoid the loss of wealth. But I felt like the same thing must have happened in February in China and Hong Kong because the government was trying to downplay. Um, they, they were trying to cover up any signal as to how serious COVID really was. So the rest of the world was kind of in this melee at the end of 2014, where you know we've been anesthetized by. You know, 11 years of ridiculously low, you know, rates, so anesthetized the risk. And we're looking at the China-Hong Kong markets going, ah, this thing can't, can't be, be so that bad, bad, right? Like, those markets aren't off. And 
I knew at the end of February when I saw the results of an Evercore survey of institutional clients that they didn't think that COVID would have, um, I think it was only a you know, relatively small minority that expected COVID to have a material impact on the economy and markets. Huh. Um, I, I was like, this is complacency. And so at the end of February, I said, guys, like all these names we've looked at throughout the years that didn't make the cut for activist short selling, but we know are crap companies. Let's short these things. Let's get CDS on cruise lines. Let's do this. Let's do that. And so we had this great March. We didn't even have to publish anything. And by the end of March, I think we were up net 11. And I'm, you know, and I, I'm thinking, man, this is going to be a record year for us. And, and we were so smug, right? At right. least I was. I'm sitting there going, yeah, you know, I've been doing all these interviews for all these years saying, if you lever up your balance sheet to buy back stock, you are creating fragility. And now, haha, all this fragility is coming home to root. Uh, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost. Look at you, private equity guys, having, you know, destroyed corpses of companies for, you know, a couple decades. Ha ha, joke's on you. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Joke was on me. Um, I think we're uh, the last to get the memo. It was like early <laughs> August when, when I'm saying like, okay, all of these trades we put on at the end of February, beginning of March, are genius trades because we're so smart. Dude, we got to get these out of the book. Like they were hanging there till August. So we, we, so we were getting, you know, we'd given back like almost all our gains on that. We'd right. Markets got back to break even in August from the pre-March collapse. Right. And then we were also now riding losses from GSX, which we'd shorted in early June. Now, we'd done well shorting eHealth in early April. So that was, that was actually, that was and is a great short, both in absolute terms and in alpha. Um, but there's GSX. And then we went into, I think, September with this really scammy company that, you know, normal times would have no business having a market cap anywhere near a billion, but called Nanox. And so we went short that with this expose as to how, like, this whole thing is just a promotion and, you know, there's no reality there. And the thing closed up on us on the day and it kept ripping. Wow. And so we're, you know, we're getting bled out on Nanox. We're getting bled out on GSX. Um, you know, our genius trades had All had painful. Us. Yeah, and it was tough. I mean, we, we really had to rally and... We were getting ready to launch another fund. You know, I was in, in January. I was I was just marketing this new fund we intended to launch in, you know, early to mid-Jan, or so early to mid-2020, and we sidelined it because of COVID. But by the time we're, we're bleeding everywhere in the summer of, of last year, I was just like, man, do not talk to me about this new fund launch. I do not care. We are in a nosedive. We need to pull out of it. So, and, so let's I mean, talk about – yeah. We did. I mean, we finished. Look, we finished with a decent print for the year. Our clients were happy, but All right. I just got really no. I got very little satisfaction from from that year. So, so I want to jump to our favorite questions we ask all our guests, and Charlie will record the outros later. That's easy enough to do. So let me uh, let me plow through my speed round, and we have like three minutes for these. Um, tell us what you're streaming these days. You know what? I'm going to hold off on this. I'm going to ask. In the last two minutes we have, uh, what do you make of some of the craziness that took place in the U.S.? 
Uh, I was reading this morning that Michael Burry of the big short fame is short Tesla. What what do you make of some of those crazy uh, stocks, um, things like GameStop, and, and any thoughts on Bitcoin? <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, the meme stocks just show that the market is broken. They are a symptom, not a cause of the market being broken. Um, the factors that have broken the market are the uh, predominance of passive investing, that actually has a convex uh, effect on price behavior and increases fragility. It's the ridiculously uh, low interest rates and excess liquidity. Um, and it's also the, um, the erosion of the rule of law and the lack of accountability uh, in, you know, in the markets and in society. So these are factors that have combined to create this broken market. And plus, there were a lot of retail and um, you know, retail market participants who came into the market last year who didn't do it out of boredom, didn't do it because they're punting their stimulus check. They did it because they were trying to gamble their way out from underneath um, financial hardships that had been created by COVID. Um, so, yeah. And so Bitcoin? What do you think of Bitcoin? Of I've got a friend who, you know, is kind of in this space, very smart guy. And he said that the the real value of any of these um, blockchain-based cryptocurrencies is the present value of the transaction fees or the I think he calls them the gas fees for using it. Um, beyond that, he admitted, and he's you know he's got a real Bitcoin position. Beyond that, he admitted it's just a tulip. So right. um, I don't touch it. I don't care. I've seen these. I've seen fads and the next things come and go like a bunch of times during my career. And I've seen a lot of people who can't tell the difference between luck and skill because they happen to be in the right place at the right time. And crypto, Bitcoin, smell that way to me. Thanks, Carson, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with famed short seller Carson Block of the research farm Muddy Waters. Uh, Carson's hedge fund has about $260 million in assets under management. If you enjoy this conversation, well, please check out any of the other nearly 400 prior discussions we've had over the past seven years. Uh, you can find those at iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together every week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.